0: Welcome to the Rerooted Podcast with Francesca Maxime, trauma sensitive mindfulness meditation teacher and poet. Together, we'll take a closer look at approaches to transforming trauma with insights from psychology, neuroscience, spirituality, social justice, and the creative arts. Join Francesca and her guests for an exploration of our shared connection and how we can cultivate greater compassion for ourselves and for others. If you'd like to support Francesca and the Rerouted Podcast, please visit com forward slash Francesca.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Francesca Maxime, and welcome to the Rerouted Podcast here on Ram Dass' Be Here Now Network. It is November 24th here in the United States. I'm on Ankitaag Land in Long Island, New York, and... Uh it is the day before what is for many a day of mourning, a day of honoring, and also a day of gratitude and giving thanks. And so I want to just sort of establish the timing of this and the complexities around this particular day and all of the um different versions, if you will, of events, and yet how there really are ultimately no alternative facts, if we if we if you will, uh in this case around um Uh, really the difficult history of the United States and the um, opportunities that arise when we can begin to get real with some of the uh, inner and outer realities that we face. And I am joined by two guests today that can help us really learn more about what those realities are and how to transform from the inside out and the bottom up. Uh, my first guest you've heard on rerouted before, uh, Sarah Payton, uh, her mm-hmm. website is S A R A H P A P E Y T O N.com. Uh, Sarah works, uh, in different modalities, nonviolent communication, unconscious contracts, different kinds of uh, neuroscience, uh, has written your resonant self and your resonant self workbook, and um, is really just uh, a lovely, uh, you know, sort of addition to the rerooted family. And we also have uh, Dr. Roxanne Manning, uh, Roxy Manning, uh, and her website is dot com. Roxy Manning, a clinical psychologist and also a nonviolent communications facilitator who loves to guide groups from discord toward values-driven solutions that work for everyone. And the reason why we're talking today and we're coming together is because Roxy's written a book called Anti-Racist Conversations, and together she and Sarah wrote a book called uh, essentially The Anti-Racist Heart, uh, a workbook, a companion workbook to this Anti-Racist Conversations um, Tome. And as someone who's spent the last few years doing embodied anti-racism work, they're kind of doing two of the things, uh, the two wings, you know, in insight meditation, we talk about the uh, two wings of insight or wisdom and of compassion or of the heart, sort of the left brain, the right brain, the head and the heart in a way that's sort of the, you know, core of the mindfulness in Buddhist philosophy And we're sort of doing that here, too. We're talking about the rough truths or the difficult truths um, that Roxy's bringing to the table in her book. And then the integration, as Dr. Dan Siegel talks a lot about, with the actual neuroscience and understanding what's happening in our body and the neuroscience and how to regulate and how to stay with some of these challenges that uh, we are facing. uh, Because oftentimes they are hard to face and we get a little lost and um, we can get into fight, flight, or freeze. So we invite you to stay present for this conversation. And I welcome uh, Roxy and Sarah to the ReRooted podcast here on Round Das's Be Here Now Network.
2: Thank, Thank you, you, Francesca. So yeah. let's
1: start um, maybe with um, you, Roxy, because you wrote this book um, mm-hmm. and I want to know a little bit more about your experiences in 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 writing and feel free to introduce yourself if you'd like uh, in terms of i didn't really do my pronouns um they're really she she our ours or she she we us and uh, you know and that kind of thing if you'd like and i'm a multi-ethnic asian dominican italian american woman who's had a lived experience of being white adjacent for the majority of my life um so
3: oh wonderful it's great to meet you francesca um I like this idea of introducing myself first because I think that influences um, why I wanted to write this book. So I'm an Afro-Caribbean immigrant. I came to the United States when I was seven and my pronouns are she, they. And... One of the things that I learned, like when I came to the United States, the whole concept of race was really confusing to me. I didn't know how to talk about it. I didn't know how to address all of the challenges that I was experiencing about it. And even as I grew up, even as I got my psychology degree, it wasn't something that people were really talking about. And I discovered that even with all of our skills, even with the folks I know who are doing nonviolent communication, we get stuck. We really don't know how to like respond both either to tell somebody I don't like what you said and the way that you are, are treating me isn't actually working for me, or to respond when someone tells us that, right? People go immediately into, you know, there's a lot been said about white fragility. We don't know how to actually respond in ways to create connection and create the possibility for change. And that's part of what I wanted to address.
1: Mm, beautiful. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and again, um, this is sort of, like I said, an inside out uh, job in in many ways. uh, And that white fragility can present in in so many different ways. You know, I think a a name many of us have gotten familiar with is Karen and um, the other name, Becky, around um, Mm -hmm. sort of, you know, at least (laughs) in some ways, you know, and and, and this is, of course, you know, we're being a little flippant, but truly Mm -hmm. uh, the idea that, um, you know, it might be Uh, difficult and uncomfortable for white people to start to lean in or white bodied or white skin privileged or light skin privileged people to lean into unpacking, uh, you know, racism. Um, But that discomfort is not uh, a life threat. And that's where you come in, Sarah.
2: Oh, so beautiful. I love that. Discomfort is not a life threat. (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. and this most wonderful piece of research that i ran into just yesterday that shows that the more self-regulated we are the less we are at the mercy of our implicit biases so the more capacity we have to name what's happening in our own bodies and be resonant with ourselves the more we have the some ground to stand on to begin to address the structural racism that is kind of terrifying the comprehensive in, in our North American world.
1: Right. Right. That's right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and thank you for, for sort of naming that. Um, You know, I think one of the first classes that I took was called uh, on, you know, anti-racism or beginning to really unpack this stuff is um, before we were white by Mm -hmm. white.org. And it really sort of digs into, well, who are you, or who 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 were you before you sort of Americanized as um, into a mm-hmm. racial category? Um, you know, what is your ethnicity? What is your history? And so many people don't know. I'm fortunate to know my mm-hmm. Italian and Haitian and Dominican uh, lineage, um, but a lot of people don't uh, know. And and for people who are African American, a lot of that has been stripped um, because of uh, the economic. Um, system uh and, and genocidal uh system that you know was uh chattel slavery. So anyway, Roxy, let's talk a little bit about your yeah. book and um mm-hmm. sort of what's in it and what can people expect and how is it a little bit different perhaps than other books that people might read on mm-hmm. um anti racism.
3: Yeah. So first, I just wanna say how touched I am hearing this piece about how much we've been stripped of our identities. And you mentioned like that truth for African-American folks. And I think it's true for African descent folks because as I mentioned, I'm Afro-Caribbean. And so I can hook onto the fact that I'm Trinidadian and I have a little bit of that heritage, but I actually still don't know my heritage, right? Because I don't know where my ancestors came from. I know we ended up in Trinidad as part of the whole slavery movement, but I don't know anything really about my background. And I think that kind of unknowing, that there's an instability there in not knowing exactly who I am and how do I fit into this larger world that's being constructed around me. In terms of the book, one of the things that I wanted people to do, I wanted to start actually with folks from the global majority, folks who identify as being one of the groups that have been marginalized, racially marginalized across the world. And there's so many different ways that we struggle there's always the question of do I fit in and what's the cost of fitting in? And I want people to be really mindful and aware of that. Every single time I have an interaction that deals with race, I'm making a choice. I'm making a choice to be silent because I think the costs are way too high, right? If I speak up to my boss who's just told a racist joke, am I gonna be like on the outs now? Am I gonna lose my job? Am I gonna get the worst assignments? Um, Or if I do speak up, am I gonna be labeled as a problem? Am I going to be, you know, the angry black woman, (laughs) the thing that I'm always worried about, right? And I want people to really learn how to both acknowledge the different places where they start to worry about these things and then choose for themselves. How do I make a choice? What helps me decide when is it worth risking? All of the things, the comfort, the belonging, sustainability that we have in speaking up. So that's one of the questions that I bring into the book that I think a lot of people don't talk about. A lot of times people talk about if somebody says something, you jump in and you do something and you speak up and we don't actually say, wait a second, hold on. I want you to make sure that you're doing it in a way that's, that actually serves you, that attends to all of the different needs that you have. Mm-hmm. So that's one piece.
1: Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. Um, yeah, you can continue. That's one <laughs> yeah, you can okay.
3: Yeah. And so then the other the next piece, then, is when I speak up, I want folks like I'm really guiding folks into thinking about all of the different things that I might need to have in place. So, again, part of what I'm pushing back against is this idea that there is a demand that if something happens, if I'm going to be a righteous black person, I'm going to speak up and I'm going to say something against it. Instead, I want people to understand um, what resources do I need? And who can I get to like actually be a supportive ally? What are some of the options for me in speaking up? I really talk a lot about calling out versus calling in, because in some ways, calling out's been demonized, you know, like that's the thing that bad people do, angry people do, but calling out has a role. And I want people to really understand that there are times when calling out is completely appropriate and it's the best that we can do. And I also want them to have in their toolbox the options to call in, to be able to say, I'm going to do my own work. Like you mentioned that insight in part, I'm going to do my own work first to understand what's going on inside of me and be able to share that with someone else in a way that invites them to stay in the conversation. Mm -hmm. So I want people to understand the differences that they might be attending to if they're choosing to call out versus calling in.
1: Right. And I think Sonia Renee Taylor says, can we call on, you know, Um, how can we really sort of integrate that accountability piece with the, um, sort of not cancel culture, and not necessarily um, just the gathering around, um, let's kind of be in the space together, which is, of course, a necessary prerequisite. um, Mm -hmm. But also this idea of um, really asking of you, um, moving toward compassionate action, embodied collective liberation. So Sarah, maybe you can talk a little bit um, about uh, how that works, and maybe give us an example of um, what might be uh, a person who might have, I think it was white fragility, it was a term you used, Roxy, which is a term that people are familiar with. Um, mm-hmm. That understanding the neuroscience and whatnot that comes through in the workbook piece um, that you've co-written. Um, anyway, I think you know my question.
2: So yeah, wh- yeah, totally. One of the. Th- things that seems now i was uh, i was just reading a, a very beautifully written book about climate crisis that's talking about a kind of entitlement like that there's a narcissistic entitlement among people that they don't want they want to think that they're exceptional and that they don't have to be part of the change process and I think that same, that same exceptionalism is one of the pieces of white fragility, like n- not wanting anything to change. But I have this other more compassionate sense of it where people have, a co- have unconscious contracts not to participate in systems of harm. And so when they're informed that the system that they're participating in is excruciatingly harmful, then their nervous systems stop dead because they they just can't go any farther because they're hitting their own unconscious contract not to participate in harm. So once people begin to see that and start to understand that that's not a livable vow, that we all live in systems of harm that include structural racism, that include the impact on the planet, then we, we start to be able to have a more realistic sense of what's possible and we don't get stopped by our own nervous systems in beginning to explore it. It doesn't devastate us. I mean, it is devastating, but having people lying on the floor in little heaps is not helpful.
1: <laughs> right, right,
2: right. <laughs> we want people to be up and participating.
1: <laughs> right, right. Well, it just reminds me of the the child state that shame ultimately is, where we get the yeah. locus of control overly internalized, where we're sort of still assuming that we have, um, you know, sort of, Uh, agency over all of these things. And of course, we do in terms of uh, participatory uh, engagement in the collective, which is why movement building is so important and why you can't in some ways, you have to do this work individually, but you can't do it alone. <laughs> um, it so you have to do it collectively, also. Uh, so I mean, like you know, nobody can really do your own personal inner work, whatever that little you know particular box of rocks that we each unpack for ourselves um, is going to be particular. But that we can't actually move. Um, that's why they're called movements. Um, you know, they're they're requiring an interlacing of of um, of collective um, of collective energy. So. So, you know, I, I think too, Sarah, when you're saying I talk about moral injury a lot is sort of the collective yeah, a, yeah. um, white, you know, sort of fragility or the, you know, sort of shame around that. And, um, you know, that being a a sort of <clears throat> term that people associate with war veterans when they've come back and they've done harm. And yet at the same time, I think that anyone who lives in this country and many just, you know, inheritors of settler colonialism that are in the privileged and not the subjugated positions also carry that moral injury. And so how do we then work with holding the reality of the fact that we've caused harm because we've been born into a system that is um, necessarily from a Buddhist lens, samsaric, which is, you know, sort of this, you know, cycle of suffering, but also that, you know, from the Buddhist teaching um, that clear seeing is the beginning of the portal of the way out. And then of oh. course there's, you know, the noble eightfold path and these other things that the rooted listeners may or may not be more familiar with. Um, but from a psychological lens, Roxy, let's talk a little bit more about sort of the ways in which um, the history um, of, 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 creating an anti-racist heart you know sort of is is a lot of people like to spiritually bypass like sort of skip ahead Mm -hmm. um and um and but yet learning some of the history i think is part of what can be uh what moves us to have that open heart can you talk a little bit about how that maybe appears in the book a little bit or what your own experiences around that are
3: yeah I, i definitely want to talk a bit about my own experiences as a model I think one of the things that we need to do is that learning this history is also learning how to kind of move through the stages of grief, right? We're like, There's an innocence that we have as children where we think that we're gonna be fully accepted and seen for exactly who we are and the capacities we bring. And that moment of realizing over and over and over again that that's not the case, we have to go through the anger and the denial and all of the stages. And whenever we don't do that, whenever we stop, we actually can get into this really frozen place. And I think that's why we sometimes see people either like insisting that other people who look like them Um, conform to a certain way of being. It's like, if I'm in my denial stage, then I don't want anyone to talk about race because I'm trying to pretend that this doesn't happen. It's like, we need to maintain together. And I get more angry at marginalized folks who talk about it than I do about the people who are perpetrating racism on the folks. Right. And so one of the really important things is to get to that stage of grief where it's okay to like really acknowledge and know this is happening and it's terrible. And I could mourn it and I don't have to collapse into my grief, that I can use my awareness to be the impetus to help me start to take action, to think about what are, and this is why I bring in nonviolent communication, what are the needs that I'm trying to address, both the needs as an individual, but also the needs for the collective, because I'm very much about how do we make this better for our groups and not just for individual, like I can thrive, I can do great as a psychologist, but I'm not thriving if other members of my community are not. So how do I attend to needs at multiple levels?
1: Right, right, beautiful. Yes, and um, and I think, Sarah, that's the whole piece of um, Marshall's work, Marshall Rosenberg, the founder of Nonviolent Communications, just one of the many models um, that you know people um, sort of, can use, I use it all the time in my therapy with clients. And um, it, it really talks about needs and strategies. And these strategies, Sarah, are not conscious necessarily strategies. They are driven by our nervous system and our limbic processes and sort of um, making sure that we survive. Because, you know, my, my mentor, Dr. Jack Cornfield, will talk about, you know, the, the body of fear, the small sense of self mm-hmm. versus what you're talking about, Roxy, which is this larger sense of self um, of pure consciousness and awareness where the the heart can be spacious and the mind can be clear and the action can come from there um, in a compassionate way. So can you talk a little bit more about how that works, Sarah? Like, it's not that I'm trying to be this or I'm not trying to be that or I know this, but I'm having a hard time doing it, even if I know it. Um, why do we get stuck there?
2: I think one of the reasons we get stuck there is because we're remarkably short on self-compassion. So we are moving through our lives and we're trying to deal with these really big issues. In this time, we're trying to deal with such big issues. And they're they're actually, the grief that we have is bigger than the neuronal structure we have to hold it. And we have very little modeling in our world for compassion for ourselves, I mean, wouldn't it be sweet if everybody who runs into a block and says, I don't want to think about structural racism, I don't want anybody to talk up to me about it, if that person also had a little, little voice sitting on their shoulder inside their head that says, well honey of course you don't are you exhausted you know just like (laughs) like a warmth for whatever it is a warmth for for despair a warmth for helplessness a warmth for for resistance a warmth for denial like that this is the way to move through those stages is to bring that gentleness with the self that's so rarely modeled <laughs> we get much more modeling of the god damn it sarah don't be an idiot you're too sensitive get your mm-hmm. butt out there you know whatever in whatever yeah. way that. yeah
3: Go and ahead. there's something about there's something about what you're saying, Sarah, that's so important because there are two things that happen, right? Sometimes people hear this warmth and they think, oh, well, that's just enabling, right? Right. I'm going to be warm to that person. I'm going to enable them to keep doing the thing that they're doing. And I think that's one of the things that's so important is that we also think about the role of allies, the role of in-group members. So like as a person of color, I don't want to necessarily be the person offering warmth, but Someone needs to be able to do it yeah. if we're going to start to create a shift for people. Yeah. And yeah. so when we recognize that, we create the space where that can happen and then still invite people back into conversation.
2: Yeah, yeah. To, and so now you're talking about doing it from the outside, mm-hmm. which, is, which is a whole nother thing because then we're, we, we need an enormous amount of self-regulation. <laughs> you know, as somebody who, who has a deep worry about structural racism and its impacts, if I see somebody who's, who's not worried about structural racism, racism mm-hmm. and its impacts, you know, I have to manage a lot of rage and fury <laughs> to be able to get calm enough to, you know, forge connection and, be, and include that person in beloved community and create the world that I really want to live in, which is much more inclusive.
1: Right. And 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 I really hear you, Roxy, that, you know, yes, that, you know, it, it would be, you know, Dr. Bruce Peary has a nice neurosequential model about regulate, relate, and reason. And I need to get regulated before I can actually hear what you're, you know, before I can sort of take in the information that you're giving me, you know, I have to, my nervous system has to be settled, but that there's something about in the history of whether it's, you know, I mean, we know we could go on and on in terms of the tropes and the, you know, the implicit and explicit um, mammies, nannies, you know, women who work in the kitchen, you know, what is the Mm -hmm. lineage and the history of black Mm -hmm. women, black Americans, black people, people who have brown skin uh, as Mm -hmm. opposed to those, Um, who are lighter white skin privileged in this racialized society, in this institutionalized systemically racialized structure, right? We're talking about the ways in which for, at least in this country of the United States for 350 years, plus that we have had codifications and legalities that have created the structure that, no, it's not our true nature. No, it's actually, yes, it is a complete fabrication and yet the of it are true and real and whatnot. So, you know, we're naming all of this to simply say, you know, Um, that it's not a person of color's job, the global majority's job to comfort and be the uh, regulator of someone who is in a white skin privileged body. And I just want to really mark that, Roxy, because I think that in the past, that's really what, you know, has happened. And you open yourself up to more harm and then to Mm -hmm. being the angry person. And then, you know, you're not being kind enough. And again, systemically, people of color have been in positions where um, it's been their survival mechanism to fawn, to to accommodate. And so I wouldn't be here if I didn't take care of your feelings. And now that we're upsetting the apple cart and saying, you have to take care of your feelings on your own. Discomfort is not life threat as we started the podcast with. And, you know, find a way, resource that. And then let's come back and have the conversation about equity and about why this microaggression went wrong and stuff like that.
3: Absolutely. And I think that's the really important part, helping people learn strategies for how to resource each other that don't rely on kind of getting a pass or, you know, an okay from people from um, historically marginalized groups.
1: Right, right, right. Um, and, and you know, I guess how does the, um, so there's two parts and, and the way in which this just, you know, for listeners who are are, are listening and watching this um, This podcast, depending on when it's going to air, it'll either be prior to or post the Kickstarter campaign that they've been using to kind of crowdsource some additional funding, which I also want to talk about sort of being outside the model of like institutionalized like, um, you know, publishing, media, all these things are all part of these structures, right? We don't, we don't, we talk about Mm -hmm. the prison industrial complex. We talk about, you know, the academia and all these kinds of things, but nothing is, um, immune to the influences of, uh, white supremacist delusional culture in terms of, um, you know, the haves or the have nots or who gets access and, you know, to power, privilege and resources. But in any case, that, that, that the, the book that Roxy wrote is, um, you know, in tandem with the workbook that, um, the two of you wrote. And I guess there's sort of a, a little bit of a, a, a sort of, challenge around which one is going to be published first. Is the workbook going to be published first or is the book Mm -hmm. going to be published first? And so that's why you came up with this um, crowdsourcing campaign. And the hope is, is that um, you'll be able to crowdsource in such a way that the book can come out first and then the workshop can, the workbook rather can come out Mm -hmm. um, afterwards. And tell me why that sequence is important. Either one.
2: We really, we really want Roxy's uh, Roxy has a very important message and we want to prioritize it and we want it to be the focus around which the workbook functions so because I have a publishing record the publisher was like we'll publish the workbook first and we'll see if then there's enough sales to justify Roxy being published but the whole point of the workbook is to support and and embroider upon and create more possibilities for Roxy's work to be so it's almost like, wait, what? You're going to publish a workbook first, but it's not supposed yeah. to be first. <laughs> so, and there are elements to me having been published that are totally connected to education. My, my just Sarah being a white-bodied person in the world and the privileges and and access to resources that I have. And so we really wanted to do something different. So we came up with this
3: this idea of crowdsourcing. Roxy, what do you want to add here? Yeah, I think I've actually really enjoyed talking with the publisher about this because they've been really clear, like they love both books. But their challenge is that as a business, given the world that we're living in, for them to take a risk, especially in these financial times, it felt too scary. But they were aware of the impact. What does it mean if a book a workbook that's supporting the work of a black author ends up being published first, right? Mainly because it has an author who's already published who also happens to be white. And so they were really kind of saying, let's brainstorm about ways that we can get, they can have the reassurance that they need that this will be okay for them and that they can support our vision. And I like the authenticity in which they were approaching this, like naming the realities of the publishing world and then also saying, and we see why this is important to do it the other way.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, and I'll just name that. I hear that. And Mm -hmm. also how many Hollywood movies have been made where they've been complete bombs and they've spent, you know, I think of Megyn Kelly. I used to be a television news anchor. I think of her TV show. I think she had a $22 million contract or something like that. And, you know, for reasons that included the fact that she, you know, said, of course, Jesus is white and, you know, wearing blackface is fine and all these other things that, you know, sort of directly (laughs) pertain to the subject matter of this podcast, but um, that, 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 that corporations blow money all the time on who they want to. And they, they Mm -hmm. take their hits and they take their losses and they file for that and they do their taxes and they do whatever they need to do in such a way that, you know, so while we want to honor um, Barrett Cooler <laughs> Publishing for being willing to bring this, um, you know, these tomes into the world. Also just honoring that, again, the resourcefulness of Black people to create new opportunities for what we would call mutual aid or collective um, crowdsourcing and liberation, because the system is set up in such a way that follows maximum profitability which has been the very reason why child slavery even existed in the first place exploitation marginalization privilege for some at the expense of others that's the actual system and so that system is inherited and embedded in the publishing institution and although they're open to the conversation here you can see that it's a thin margin right and so it's it's just it's just very interesting to see it live out even as we're here And, um, and I'm glad and I'm hopeful um, that, you know, (laughs) things will go as you like, uh, because it certainly makes more sense to me. But these are the ways in which um, this gets played out. And they could take a risk. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Just like anybody could take a risk. Somebody Mm -hmm. took a risk on Oprah, and look at what she did.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I wish I would be an Oprah. But (laughs) I I completely agree with you. I think it's there's always this fine line of walking, right? Am I? I want to acknowledge that absolutely they can take a risk. And when I think about why I've been willing to kind of give them a pass about this, I think it's partly because of the work that they've done. You know, I really celebrate the third B Corp publisher and like they've done things like they've taken risks with like Adrian Marie Brown's book. They're doing things. And so I'm kind of thinking, okay, mm-hmm. I know that they are willing to take risks with some of this work. And Part of, as I'm talking to you, I'm actually going, it's part of my giving them a pass, part of my internalization of this, right? Why would they take a risk on me? Which is part of the whole world that we're trying to dismantle. And so, complicated, complicated issue.
1: Right. And listen, when nobody wants to, you know... Um, in the old days, uh, you know, there was an expression called, you know, you don't bite the hand that feeds you, so to speak. And that was sort mm-hmm. of the, the, the threat, right? Like, you know, um, don't rebel, um, don't, you know, don't cause a don't cause a ruckus, just be nice, mm-hmm. be polite. And, and, mm-hmm. and I think there's room to hold both. I am filled yeah. with compassion and love and connection. I am honoring and loving the work that this publisher and other publishers that, you know, are supporting, um, you know, folks. I think it was Penguin. I was listening to Nicole Hannah Jones the other day uh, about the 1619 Project book that she just put out, um, and uh, you know, that's a really powerful uh, collection of essays and photographs and 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 mm-hmm. whatnot that you know speak directly to the history of uh, race in this country. But you know, it, it's 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 also just naming the fact that we are living in these systems. So we have yeah. about. 15 minutes, maybe maybe 12 minutes or so. Um, what else do people need to know in terms of what they can expect if they want to engage with this material and how it's unique?
3: Please, Roxy. <laughs> no. I'd, love, I'd love you to take that one. Oh, sure, <laughs> sure. Yeah. So the, the,
2: the ways that this material is unique, um, um, one of the ways that it's unique, and and many authors are, are also doing this, um, but there's a um, there's an integration of not just neuroscience and anti-racism, which has been done beautifully in the book Deep Diversity, but the way that this is different and the way that this expands the conversation is to integrate also a sense of the way that language reveals the inner working of the brain, and that language is almost like um, an external neurotransmitter that brings different chemical messages to different brains all over the world. And when we speak about something as tough and as difficult as structural racism, then once we also bring into that language a sense of compassion and a sense of connection and a sense of the universal needs that connect all people then we start to be able to almost leverage an understanding of not just the brain and how it has implicit biases, but also how we speak, how we choose to speak, what choices we make with our language. What are the blocks that stop us from being able to express the way we want to, or to challenge the way we want to, or to call in or call on. I love call on. And how, do, how do we do that? And Roxy's work is specifically focused on how do we do that? And then the workbook will be specifically focused on what are the blocks that occur <laughs> when we try to do that, and how do we be so gentle and understanding with them in ways that dissolve them instead of being, you know like a replication of the entire conflict within our own brains? Because when we're cruel to ourselves, or when we're cruel to others, we're replicating systemic racism on a neuronal level within our own brains. And when we shift into this into this wider possibility that Roxy's offering us, something very different starts to happen.
1: Mm. What would you
2: add here,
3: Roxy? Yeah, what I would add is there's something, a while ago I did a talk on, at a college for Martin Luther King Junior Day. And one of the things that the student who was emceeing it said at the end of the talk was, she's always loved Dr. King's work. And she kept thinking, Essentially, like he's a God, you know, I could never do that. I could never be the person who would show up with both that kind of fierce, unrelenting speaking truth and doing it in a way that's compassionate. And especially like in the last few years where we've been so divisive and so much focused on kind of tearing each other down in order to advance. That's what I'm trying to do differently. I'm trying to go back to that place where we can speak truth and we can say the things that need to be said But do it in a way that's inclusive, that really is about building community. Because my fear is that if we keep burning like different communities, then essentially like I can be on top, but then this community will always be fighting to get their place back. So we need to find a way that we can all be on top together. And that's what I'm trying to do in the book, to show people how to have those fierce conversations, but in a way that also sees the humanity of the other.
1: Yes, I I love that. And I, I do think that's the answer, right? I mean, we are building multiracial, you know, community. I, I think when I was in like middle school, grade school or high school, I don't know. I wrote a paper um, some, or a speech or something on, you know, what is community. And all I remember about it, because I probably crashed, you know, wrote it like the night before. Or something. <laughs> um, all I really remember about it was that um, my focus was that community and it's truest sense, I mean, we use the word very sort of loosely, but that it's needs based, it's needs based, meaning wow. that like it's almost like a chain, a link or a chain. And this is way before I knew anything about Buddhism and interdependence and all of these mm-hmm. other kinds of things. Um, but that, that, that nothing is, is, is separate and that, you know, we're, and, and that, that when I offer you something that I'm able to offer and that comes from a place of natural abundance and that you're able to receive that, then I trust that whatever it is that you have that you are gifted with, you will then offer in turn to whomever it is that may need that. And it is in that way that we're sort of linked together and that that forms a community because we are interdependent in the most... Um, true way. And, and, and I think subjugated and marginalized communities often are truly interdependent in that way, because there is more of subsistence level so that, you know, there is more sort of needs based, whereas we have this rugged individualism, you know, sort of nuclear family structure um, that we have been fed in the Western world around what success Mm. is or means. And um, we're actually these mammals who can't really hold on to a village beyond 150 people uh, and stay easily regulated, you know, and so we're all kind of trying to, to manage, how do we, how do we, invite in a sense of collective uh, well-being despite these constructed racial differences and the inevitable implicit biases and prejudices that do manifest in harmful and unskillful actions and hold our sense of positive, warm regard and self-esteem and our willingness to have what I call an embodied humility around these issues of leaning into getting curious and being open to something that may be uncomfortable, but also may be emergent and growth producing. Yeah, yeah. So we have about five minutes or so. Why don't we talk a little bit more about um, what what you feel is the toughest part of the book that you wrote and what did you have the most joy writing?
3: Hmm. (sighs) I think the toughest part is how to really demonstrate that having compassion, for people who are doing harm to us is okay, is <laughs> actually serving my long-term goal. Like when I think about that goal of beloved community, that having that compassion in the moment when I'm grieving, when I'm angry, is helping to build beloved community. And to do that in a way that doesn't, like I said before, feel like I'm giving a pass or I'm absolving people or not actually addressing the issues.
1: Right. Yeah. I, and as you're saying that, Roxy, and then I want to hear from you, Sarah. Um, I'm reminded of the story, and I, I and I don't remember um, her name, but it was a Tibetan nun that I think had been incarcerated for you know decades, and you know mm-hmm. they asked her something when she was freed. What you know, what was she most afraid of? And she said that uh, I think if I'm paraphrasing this correctly, along the lines of. Um, that I would lose compassion for my captors or something like that, you know, and I, and and that you know underscores your and and if I didn't get that story right, don't hold me to it. But I think that's kind of what the moral of that story was, which echoes what you've said, and that's and that's after yeah. decades of um, of abuse.
3: Yeah, and that's actually what we all experience, right? We experience decades of abuse going through the society that's so racialized, but
1: right. somehow
3: we're not going to change it if we can't find a way to hold compassion.
1: Right. Which is different from not being able to have a sense of accountability that you're looking for. Exactly. You know, and, and again, a, a bringing in. Um, Sarah, tell me about um, your experiences, you know, the highs and the lows of, of the of the of the work.
2: Yeah, well, it's 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 interestingly similar, but it has a slightly different taste to it, which is um, how to really want beloved community and be authentic about it. And hold my own outrage with with enough care that that there's that it, that the book really embodies the compassion, mm. because because uh, sometimes I I, I just the, the fire gets kind of intense and it it really wants yeah. to blame people,
1: yeah, <laughs> tell well, them they're I- wrong. Think- but like I heard someone say that, you know, most of the people that do all this neuroscience and trauma work that I do, they never get to the place of the activism and the engagement that's so necessary. All my mindfulness communities, we like to sit on the cushion and just sort of be in our sati and, you know, have a, oh, well, I know what I'm thinking, even though I'm not caught in my thinking. And that means I'm doing my mindfulness right. But, you know, and, and I write a check once a year to this organization. And so that means I'm engaged <clears throat> so that this this piece is, you know. I'm doing my inner work, but I'm not doing my outer work. And then the other one is, is I'm so dysregulated. I'm doing my outer work that I'm not able to do my inner work because I'm out there sort of fighting the power, you know, Um, Chuck D over here. So this idea of integrating inside out, that it's both, again, the two wings of wisdom and compassion, compassionate action Mm -hmm. of insight, rather, and um, the head and the heart, the left and the right brain and, and movement from that. Movement. And how do
2: we get to joy? You yeah. Know? Because it is essentially yeah. joyful work. I mean, it's work of inclusion. It's work of expression. It's work of like authentic expression. How do we get to
3: joy? Yeah. I'm so like, I love the way that you just said this, Francesca, this piece around Like, how do I actually take action, but from this grounded place, right? Mm -hmm. From a place where I'm really connected to what's important to me and then to what I'm looking to create in the world so that we're not just, you know, kind of spinning our wheels and finding inner peace and then still, like, I don't want my inner peace to be that I'm okay with suffering. I want to actually be taking steps to change suffering.
1: Right, right, right. And um, as we as we kind of, again, um, sort of are winding down, I think it's and I always say this wrong because it's such a multisyllabic name, but Avilokiteshvara, a thousand arms of compassion, you know, sort of this Mm -hmm. uh, deity that is sort of um, this abundant compassion and, and kindness. And I think that the, you know, in a sexist world, in a patriarchal world, which is embedded in the capitalist, white supremacist, delusional, you know, patriarchal world. And, you know, this is Audre Lords and other folks, um, you know, sort of ways of, of framing this sort of uh, carbon monoxide ether that we're inhaling when we're thinking we're inhaling oxygen, that I think that this, this idea is often the burden of women um, or of femmes or of, um, you know, those with um, uh, a sort of a feminine energy that the patriarchy doesn't allow um, that it doesn't open to that and that, uh, you know, sort of uprooting that you can be uh, both in your body fully embodied with masculine energy and also recognize the ways in which uh, just as racism i think tony morrison said racism you know is possibly just as destructive if not more so to white people although in an entirely different way as it is to people of color um that patriarchy is just as although beneficial to men uh just as destructive if not more so as borne out by the research with suicide rates and and you know Mm -hmm. all of these kinds of things depression alcoholism um addiction as it is to uh to to women. So it's in our mutual interest. It's in our best yes. interest. Yes. Yes. In our personal and our collective. You're not doing this for anyone else. Yes. So parting thoughts or words before we head off?
2: Mm-hmm. Total gratitude, Francesca.
3: Thank you for having us with you. Mm-hmm. Oh. And this is my first time meeting you. I enjoy the breadth of knowledge that you're bringing to this conversation.
1: Thank you. (laughs) Thanks. I'm a, I'm a, um, what's the word? verbose. I don't know. I, yeah, that too, but, um, encyclopedia instead. <laughs> well, it's, it's a real joy. Um, Roxanne Manning, dot uh, com and Sarah S A R A H Peyton P E Y T O N.com. Anti-racist conversations is the book that Roxanne has written and the companion, uh, workbook, the anti-racist heart, um, is the one that Sarah mm-hmm. and Roxy have co-written and, um, you know, find their web pages, you know, try to, you know, support the work. Uh, and we'll look forward to when uh, the publication date comes around uh, real soon. And um, thank you for moving us into a space of collective liberation.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Francesca.
1: Bye, everyone.